Thank you, Dr. Dave. I guess my mic's on, so that's good. Uh, I have to say, I really enjoyed uh, the worship this morning, and if you were paying attention to the lyrics, then you pretty much got uh, the sermon. So, Dave, thanks for pairing uh, excellent hymns for us this morning. Uh, As Dr. Dave said, we'll be reading from the book of James, so you can go ahead and either open your Bibles or get out your handouts. And let's turn our attention to the reading of God's Word this morning. The reading comes from James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you hear us because of Jesus. And we ask this morning that you would Send your spirit to illumine our hearts, to humble us that we might sit under your word and not over it, and that we might come to know more about you, that we may better glorify you in our lives. We pray this now in Christ's name, amen. The greatest wealth is health. At least, that's the train of thought of the great Roman poet Virgil. And although he said that some 2,000 years ago, he kind of captured the spirit of our age, didn't he? You and I live in a world that spends much of its time, its energy, and its resources in an all-out pursuit for health. Let me try and illustrate for you the kind of world that we live in. Let's consider some of the financial figures for a minute. Between 1960 and 2015, the national GDP spent on health care nearly tripled to almost 18%. And to put that into perspective, that's nearly four times what is spent on defense and three times what is spent on education. On top of that, consumers have spent over $100 billion on things like fitness programs, anti-aging procedures, dietary dietary supplements, and the like. Throw on top of that the countless dollars that are spent on pharmaceutical research and medicine and all of these things, and you will see that we live in a world that is spending everything it has on health. And I'm not trying to say that that's all bad. I mean, consider the the technology advancements that we've had or the advancements in cures and, and things that we can get done. I mean, diseases that have been cured or... Uh, The technology like organ transplants and respirators and transfusions and genetic mapping and all of these wonderful things that we can praise God for. But I wonder if there's another side to that. 
I wonder if all of this money we spend and all of these advancements that we've made haven't given us the illusion that we have perfect control over our health. I think many of us assume that if something were to go wrong with our bodies, medicine would have an answer for us. My guess is that many of us live with the assumption and perhaps even the expectation that we are entitled to a long and healthy life. But I think deep down we know that that's not really the case. However, it's these kinds of assumptions, when coupled with poor biblical interpretation, lead to terrible misunderstandings of what the Christian faith actually believes. Our passage this morning is a text that has been abused and has been misused to teach that our health is a gift from God that he is just waiting to give us. And if we simply have enough faith, we can reach out and take it for ourselves. This is a teaching that has sadly hurt and caused a great deal of pain for many, many people But as we will see when we're studying the text this morning, what James is laying out for us is actually a wonderful and beautiful model for care and prayer within the church. So this morning we're going to be going through the text in three points. Those three points are the prescription, the medicine, and the cure. Within each of those points, I'll be laying out for you what James is teaching us this morning. We'll also touch on a couple errors that people commonly have. And then we'll also be teasing out some application along the way. So let's jump in to our first point here, the prescription. Right now I'm looking at verses 13 and 14 primarily. And this first point is really an important one. It's very foundational to our understanding of this text. But it's also easy for us to miss. What James lays out for here in these two verses is a prescription for church membership as the means for care within the Christian life. In other words, James' underlying assumption is that if you're going to live a healthy Christian life, it's going to be in the context of membership in a local church. So let's tease this out here in verses 13 and 14. In verse 13, James plays out this contrast between two people, the suffering person and the cheerful person. He says the suffering person person should pray, and the cheerful person should sing praise. Now, what James is not saying here is simply either you're the person who is cheerful or you're the person who is suffering. What he's trying to help us see is that in every season of our life, we need the ministry of other Christians to help us live the Christian life. And so he says the suffering person should pray and the cheerful person person should sing praise. And the idea here is that if we live a Christian life alone in isolation, we tend to drift to extremes. The suffering person, as an example, what happens when we're in seasons of suffering? We maybe start with praise on our lips, but as the season goes on, as the suffering continues, we start to lose hope. Bitterness overtakes us. We become jaded. We kind of lash out. We get cynical. And so we start to drift towards this one extreme end of the spectrum. But consider the other end of the spectrum. When we're in seasons of great cheer and prosperity and things are going well for us, 
What's the first thing that disappears from our lives? We start to lose a feeling of dependence on God, don't we? We tend to pray less when things are going well. We're very good at praising God, but we start to develop an expectation that prosperity will continue. And so, James is saying, within the church, there will be people who are suffering and will need the ministry of the cheerful person to bring them hope. And there will be people who are cheerful who will need to be reminded that there's real suffering in this world and that they need need to continue to pray along with those who are suffering. Let me try and tease out for you what um, these uh, ends of the spectrum look like, these extreme ends of the spectrum that we can drift into. Let's consider the cheerful person for a moment. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. But for all the king's horses and all the king's men, they what? They couldn't put Humpty back together again. Now, this is a cute little nursery rhyme, right? We don't really know much about Humpty's life from the nursery rhyme alone, but fortunately, in Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass, which is the sequel to Alice in Wonderland, he sort of takes Humpty's story and he fills in the cracks. Ah, you're tracking with me. Good. So when Alice first meets Humpty in the forest, Humpty's sitting up on his wall, and he is just this arrogant character. He believes nothing bad can ever happen to him. We're left to think that probably nothing to this point has. And so Alice says to him, don't you think it's dangerous to be on this wall? And he says, you foolish girl, you think I, I wouldn't be up here. If I, if I was going to fall, and besides, the king has promised me that if I did fall, he'll send all his horses and all his men. But sure enough, what happens? Alice walks out of the forest at the end of the conversation, and she hears a loud crash that shakes the whole forest. Suffering finally came for him. Or keeping in step now, let's consider the other end of the spectrum, the sort of the suffering end of the spectrum that we can drift towards, keeping in step with this fictional theme. Uh, Yesterday, I think, was the 50th anniversary of the movie Cinderella coming out. And uh, who's the villain in the Cinderella story? It's the stepmother, right? Wants to keep Cinderella from going to the ball. Um, In the cartoon, she's kind of a one-dimensional character, but in the live-action remake that came out a couple years ago, she's a lot more rounded in her character. And so when we first meet her, she's in a state of mourning. She's lost her husband. And so she marries into Cinderella's family. And the father, he's still a little unsure that he wants to be married again. And so he's very distant from the stepmother. She's left alone in isolation to mourn. She becomes bitter because she sees the father is still very affectionate towards Cinderella. And the last straw is she hears the father telling Cinderella one night that he will never love another woman like he loved the mother, the first mother. And so now the stepmother gets so bitter, so jaded, she can't help but act out on her emotions. And so she lashes out. And so one end of the spectrum is we become so delusional about the world that things are going to go so well for us that we become like Humpty. The other end of the spectrum is we become so bitter and so jaded, 
if left alone in isolation, we become like the stepmother. And what James is telling us here in verse 13 is we need the, uh, the ministry of other Christians to help balance us out, to minister to us in every season of life. Now in verse 14, this gets even more explicit because James introduces the third person, the sick person. And this is really who we'll be dealing with the rest of our time this morning. But notice with me in verse 14, James says, let the one who is sick call upon the elders to pray. So you see, the underlying assumption for James is that if you're a Christian, you're a member of a church with elders and pastors who know you that you can call upon when you're sick. So, we've seen, I think it's pretty clear that James would have for us this idea of church membership. And that really brings out the first error that we encounter that many people have when approaching this text, you know, because there's this underlying current sometimes in Christianity today that Christianity is sort of a solo adventure, that it's kind of, you know, adventures with me and my buddy Jesus. And um, people will say, well, you know, Christianity is all about my relationship with God. And that's true to an extent, but the problem with that is doesn't take into account that when we have a relationship with God, we also have a relationship with our brothers and sisters. And so when we approach this text merely as an individual, and we, ask, we only ask the question, well, what do I have to do? What is this saying to me? We come to the text and we say, huh, okay, uh, James says, call upon the elders to pray, so I need to pray. Well, of course you need to pray. But is that what James is saying here? No, he's saying call upon others to come and pray. So a couple questions for us for application. First question I have is for those of you who are church members. I think there's a tendency for us sometimes to think of church membership merely as a duty. Uh, Maybe it's something that we know we kind of should do because we've always done it. But how might your view of church membership change if you saw it not so much as a duty, but as a means of God's grace for you to make sure that you're cared for in every season of your life? How would your view of gathering with the church on the Lord's Day change? How would your view of being committed to a Bible study or a community group or some other group within the church, how might that change if you saw it as a means of grace rather than a duty? The second question I have is for those of you who are not church members, and I know there's varied reasons for that. Um, You know, maybe you're a new Christian, you're still kind of figuring it out. Maybe you're in a season of transition, which I totally understand, you know, when we're moving around and it takes a a season to sort of figure out where we'll land in a church. I understand that. But what about for those of you who've been a Christian for any length of time and haven't yet taken that step for church membership? I don't want to sort of beat anyone over the head about it. That's not what I'm trying to do. I just want to ask you to consider that a season is coming where you will need to call upon the ministry of the church to care for you. And I think it's just something to consider before that day comes and you don't have this means of God's grace in your life to call upon. So a couple questions there for us to think about. Now, If this underlying assumption, this underlying prescription that James has for us in this text is church membership, 
That leads us then into our second point. And in our second point, in verses 14 to 16, James now gives us the medicine that we should take if we are in this situation of the sick person. He gives us medicine to take, and the medicine is twofold. It's being anointed with oil, and it's prayer. Anointing with oil and prayer. Now, before we get into this point in detail, I want to be emphatic about something. What I am not saying and what James is not saying is that you should not pursue physical medicine. Okay, that is not what James teaches. That is not what the Bible teaches. However, what James is saying to us this morning is maybe we need to consider that there is a spiritual element to our sickness. Maybe there is a spiritual element sometimes to our disease. And so that's what we need to think about this morning. So he gives us this medicine, anointing with oil and prayer. The first one we see in verse 14, James says, we call upon the elders to be anointed with oil. Many of you know that in you know, ancient times and still around the world, oil can be used for medicinal purposes, maybe for a skin disease or an open wound or something like that. That's not what's in view here. The predominant view or the predominant use of being anointed with oil was a means of setting someone or something aside for a holy purpose. So often kings or priests or rulers, they were anointed with oil to signify that they were being set apart for a holy purpose, a holy use within the community. And so James is saying here that when we anoint someone with oil, we're setting them apart for special care as a symbol that we're petitioning the Lord for special care, special grace, special mercy on them in their great time of physical need. It's really a very comforting and pastoral thing if you you think about it, the encouragement that can bring to us when we're sick. And so the sick person is to be anointed with oil. And then in verse 15 and 16, James talks about this idea of prayer and confessing sins and the prayer of faith and the prayer of the righteous man. And this is now sort of the meat of our sermon. And we have a couple issues we have to iron out here. In verses 15 and 16... James lays out a principle for us that he repeats in both verses. And so if we understand the principle in verse 15, we'll understand what he's saying in verse 16. It's kind of like, you know, in college, there's introductory courses and application courses. If you get the principle of the introductory courses, you can apply, you know, the principle elsewhere. So that's what's kind of happening in verse 15 and 16. So in verse 15, James says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and will raise them up. There's a temptation for us to think that James is merely or sort of only talking about spiritual healing here. It's possible that these words, these words for save and being raised up, it's possible that these words could refer to spiritual healing. But we can't really make that work here in this text. We've talked before in this series now, we've been talking about rules for biblical interpretation. Another rule that we should remember is that we should never make a word say something more than its context calls for. Never make a word say something more than it needs to say in its context. And so in verses you know, 14 uh, through 18, really, we see that James is talking about a physically sick person. And the image that James has here is of a sick person lying on their bed. They're bedridden. The elders are coming and they're 
you know, praying over this person, anointing this person. And when the sick person is healed, they're raised up again from their, their bedridden state. That's the image James has for us here. And so in verse 15 and 16, I think it's very clear that we're dealing with being healed of a physical sickness or a physical disease. Does God still heal us today of our physical sicknesses and diseases? Yes, and amen, and we should be praying for that fervently. Is that what James is talking about here? Yes. And so this is where sort of the issue comes in, isn't it? Because on the surface, we may think that James is guaranteeing that a prayer of faith will heal us. But is that really what he is saying? Let's take a step back and consider what he's saying in its context. In verse 15, notice at the end of the verse, James says this. He says, And if this person has committed sins, they will be forgiven. If. If you're you know, using your Bible right now, you can highlight that word, circle it, put a star next to it, whatever you have to do, because if is a key word here. You see, James is not drawing a direct relationship between sin and sickness. He's saying sometimes there is, and so if there has been a sin that has caused sickness, you will be forgiven and you will be healed. If. It's important for us to see that. But we can also see that if we take a step back and get a bird's eye view of the book of James. Let's consider now the audience that he's writing to. Remember in James chapter 4, in verse 3, James says, You do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. See, the context of James's letter is not a situation where people are actively praying and they need to be encouraged to pray with just a little bit more faith. No, the audience is one that isn't praying at all. And they need to be encouraged that prayer is effective when it is prayed for with the right desires and it's in accordance with God's will. And that's really what the rest of the Bible teaches on this subject, isn't it? Let's take a step back again and get kind of a 30,000-foot view of the Bible and what the rest of the Bible teaches on this subject. Sometimes there is a direct relationship between our sin and sickness. Other times there is not. In 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper to the Corinthians, he says, some of you have taken the Lord's Supper in an improper way, and that's why some of you are sick and you've even died. Or in Mark chapter 2, when Jesus heals the paralytic, he says, son, your sins are forgiven, now get up and walk. Very clear relationship between sin and sickness. But at other times, there's no relationship between the two. Remember the book of Job. The author goes out of his way to tell us that Job is a sinless and righteous man. And yet he suffers tremendously. Or in John chapter 9, when Jesus heals the blind man and the disciples come to him expecting a relationship between the two. And they say, 
Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. So, sometimes there is a relationship. Sometimes there is not. The Lord knows we do not. And so that's why now, coming back to our passage in James chapter 5, when James says to pray a prayer of faith, what he's talking about is a prayer that petitions the Lord for healing, confesses sins that we may have committed, all the while acknowledging that the Lord is sovereign over our lives. That's why he says to call upon the elders to pray, not because the elders have some special gift of healing, not because they have some special gift of prayer, but generally because they're considered to be those who have the wisdom to pray in this way, to pray with that kind of faith. They're a model for us. And so if that's the principle of this prayer of faith, we can then now apply it in verse 16, because in verse 16, James takes that principle and he applies it to the whole community, community, and he says, the community should therefore always be confessing sins to one another in case if there are sins that have been committed to cause sicknesses. Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed if sins have caused sickness. Then he says the prayer of a righteous person is effective. What he's talking about here is this prayer of faith, this prayer which petitions for healing, which confesses sins, all the while acknowledging the Lord's sovereignty. So again, a quick question for us for application. If you're anything like me, when something goes wrong... um, I've told some of you, uh, I am kind of a a 30-year-old with, um, I don't know, like sort of a very old body. I've had many surgeries, and my knee always hurts. I have a limp right now. And my temptation always when something goes wrong is just give me the pills. You know, I'm going to go to the doctor, and I'm going to get the pills, and then I'm I'm good. Um, But I think what James would have us consider this morning is maybe we'd have to consider that our times of illness, times of sickness, is really fertile soil for spiritual healing and spiritual restoration to take place. How might that change your prayer life when things go wrong? How might that one simple act when your throat hurts or you get a diagnosis or something like that, how might this change your prayer life? I think that's something for us to think about as we leave from here. Now, we've said that the great error already, error number one, is to approach this passage in sort of an individualistic way, to read this and say, ah, what do I have to do? And we read ourselves into the passage. The second error is sort of related to the first, and that is, do you notice that there's a pattern? Um, Whenever we start to think of Christianity merely as this sort of solo adventure, or if we, maybe we know people who sort of think of Christianity in this way, it's not before too long that we don't start to wonder, huh, I wonder what I can get out of this God character. You know, it's just the natural pattern that follows, and so we think, okay, um, it's sort of, you know, all about me and my relationship with God, so what do I have to do to get something from God? 
And so we impress that model upon the text. And so again, we read that into the text and we assume that if we do something right, we get something out of it. And so we say, ah, if I have enough faith, if I'm righteous enough, God will do what I want. And in a world that is rapidly just always pursuing this idea of health, it's often our health that we look to God for. And so we say, ah, if I'm sinless enough, if I'm righteous enough, if I just have enough faith, God will give me my health. But again, as we've seen, is that what James is teaching here? Not at all. And the sad problem when we start committing these errors is that we're really not worshiping the God of the Bible anymore. We're worshiping the God of health that we've made for ourselves. And like any other idol, it will eventually crush us. I'm going to tell you a story this morning to try and bring this home uh, for you. Um, I've been spending a lot of time recently in the hospital. Some of you know this. I volunteer every week in the children's uh, cancer unit at a local hospital. And so I started this a few months ago. And I'll never forget my first day on the unit. Uh, I walk in, I'm totally nervous, I have no idea what I'm doing, I'm totally outside of my element, and I know I'm supposed to send, spend my time with, you know, the sick children and their families, and so I'm, I'm nervous, I'm nervous, and I, and I go up to the board that has all the patients that I'll be visiting that day, and I look to the top line, name, age and gender, three years old, female. And in that moment, I was overcome, I think, with a state of shock. Just this poor little girl in here with cancer. And so I think I must have had a visible look of sort of disbelief on my face because a nurse walked by and she said, oh, yeah, you know, she's, um, she's having a really hard day and you probably won't be able to do much for her, so you don't need to see her, you know, if you don't want to. I wanted to use that as an excuse to hide behind you know, like, oh, good, I, maybe I, I'll skip it for today until I get comfortable. But then I sort of had a, you know, attack of conscience. I said, no, this is, you know, this is why I'm here. And so I sort of mustered up some courage, and I walk over to her door. And even before I knock on the door, I can hear her crying. And so I knock, and I open the door, peer my head in, and it was like in that moment, time stood still. The first thing that caught my eye was... She was wearing those little uh, stick-on earrings that girls, little girls wear, you know, before their ears are pierced. And then the, the picture widened as I noticed that she had wires and IVs just sticking out of every limb. And she was crying. She was in so much pain. And then time sort of speeds up and the father sort of lunges at me. He says, oh, thank you. I've been waiting for someone to come. I need to go check on her food. Will you please stay with her? I said, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll stay with your, with your little girl. And so he sort of rushes out of the room, and here I am with this little three-year-old girl. And so I sort of then pull out my playbook that I've learned in children's ministry, you know, how to make a crying child stop. Um, so I take her toys, and I'm kind of doing these little fun things with the toys, and I'm trying to make her laugh, and she's just kind of swatting at me. She wants nothing to do with me. 
And then I take her sparkly paints that are sitting there by the bed and I start sort of painting my face and I have a pink nose and green circles on my cheeks to try and make her smile like a clown. Nothing. And so after about five or ten minutes of this, I think she had become exhausted from crying as she just laid down and started quietly sobbing to herself. And it was all I could do in that moment but to just rub my hand on her back and pray for her. And as I'm doing so, I look over and I see on the bedstand next to me a book. The Healing Promises of Jesus by a very famous, well-known health and wealth teacher. In that moment, I was so angry because I know what he teaches. And some of you may say, oh, well, have you read the book? No, I haven't, but I went to his website. And sure enough, I went to the website to see what does this man say about healing promises of Jesus. Your health is a gift that God is waiting to give you. And then he says this, Jesus died for your healing. Listen to me. That is not what Christianity teaches. That is not what Christians believe. That is not why Jesus died. He died so that we might be reconciled to God and enjoy all of him forever, regardless of our physical state in this life. So tell me, what happens to these parents if their poor baby girl doesn't make it? They show up to church. Oh, what, your, your little girl didn't make it? Where was your faith? You failed her. That's cruel. And that's wicked. And the great reality is, is that our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones all around us are carrying around with them the shame and the condemnation that comes with this belief. And you and I have the privilege of taking with us this message of hope. This message that Jesus rids us of our shame and condemnation. Now let's take a step back again and look at this passage because if we kind of stop here, as we've said, that, you know, when we're sick, we call upon elders to pray and, you know, uh, the prayer of faith and all of these things. If we stop here, it's still kind of all about us, isn't it? At the end of the day, you know, we call upon elders, we pray, we pray together. And the problem with that is that our faith is weak. It is. Our faith is fragile. It's a very fragile thing. It's human. Even the faith of our elders is a fragile thing. And so calling upon the ministry of others in times of need, that's good to an extent. But maybe not today. Maybe you've come in today, you feel your faith is very strong. Or maybe today is a day you've come in and you're, you're just holding on by a thread. But a season is coming where we will doubt, where our faith will be weak. When that diagnosis comes, when the phone call comes, when you're driving home one night and you wake up the next day in the hospital, sooner or later, our faith will be weak. And so where is our hope then? Where is our hope then 
to pray prayers of faith? Where is our hope that God will even hear us? After all, Isaiah 59, he says that on account of our sins and our iniquities, God hides his face from us and he does not hear us. What hope do we have left to ourselves? The truth is there is no hope left to ourselves. Unless, unless we have the perfect prayers of a perfectly righteous man interceding for us on our behalf. That takes us to our final point, the cure. How is it that our prayers are effective? How is it that we could have confidence to pray in every season of our life? How is it that we can have confidence that God will hear us? The answer, my friends, is in the powerful and effective prayers of Jesus on our behalf. Look with me at verse 17 and 18. James uses this example of Elijah. And he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And certainly, if you read Elijah's narrative in First and Second Kings, he was a man very much like us. He had doubts. He had weak faith. He was depressed. He was not sinless. And yet, God heard him. Why? Was it because he had perfect faith? Was it because he had moments where he was perfectly sinless? No. He heard Elijah out of grace, just like he hears us out of grace. Because there was another man with a nature very much like ours. And yet he was perfectly righteous and he prayed perfect prayers of faith. And on the eve of his death, he prayed, Lord, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. And this perfect prayer of faith was answered in the way that all of our prayers should be. Silence. So the next day, the Heavens shut and the skies darkened, and in that moment, between heaven and earth, hung this perfectly righteous man who prayed perfect prayers of faith, and he died. But he didn't stay dead. He was risen three days later, and he now sits at the right hand of God to live, to make intercession for us on our behalf. 1 John 2.1 says that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He was turned down once, but he will never be turned down again. He prays perfect prayers for us. He prays everything that we would pray if we knew everything that he knew. That means sometimes we pray the things that he is praying And that's an effective prayer. Other times we pray things that he is not praying for us, but only when it's something that is bad for us. We can have hope that he is always praying for us, for our good, for our holiness, and for our joy in him. We can have hope that he is praying for us even now, that he hears us, and the Father always hears him. 
That is the hope that we have. That is the comfort and the confidence we have to pray prayers of faith, to pray righteous prayers, and to confess our sins that we may be healed. Let's go to him now together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that your word teaches us and guides us into the truth of what it means to live a life in relationship with you and relationship with other Christians. Father, we don't know why there are seasons of suffering and sickness in this life. We don't know why it continues. But we know that you are sovereign over all things and that you are good and that because of Christ Jesus, you hear us. Though our flesh and our heart may fail, you are our strength and our portion forever. We thank you that you've given us Christ as our great high priest and that you've given us your spirit. Help us to live and apply this passage to our lives as we go here, go from here this week. We pray this now and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.